Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Good evening, and welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, the founder of Climate One. Our guest today is David Orr. Paul Sears, Distinguished Professor of Environmental Studies and Politics at Oberlin College. He's the author of many books and is perhaps best known for spearheading the design, fundraising, and construction of the Environmental Studies Center at Oberlin College. The Department of Energy called that building one of 30 milestone buildings of the 20th century. His latest book is Down to the Wire, Confronting Climate Collapse. Please welcome David Orr. Greg, thank you, and uh, thanks to the Commonwealth Club for uh, sponsoring the public dialogue about climate change. There is, in many ways, a a gap, a huge gap between the science dialogue on one side and the public policy uh, discourse on the other. And so thanks to the Commonwealth Club and, and Greg, to you and all your colleagues. Um, I'm going to describe the book very quickly and some background. And for the last uh, several years, I've been involved uh, with climate at three different levels. The book Down to the Wire is the 35,000-foot view overview. What, what does it mean for us to live uh, at this particular time in, in human history? Uh, the second level, at about, say, 15,000 feet, was a project that uh, several of us got together, which is called the uh, President's Climate Action Project, You can go to uh, climateactionproject.com and download most of the materials. But we set out three years ago to uh, develop a climate action plan aimed at the first 100 days for the next U.S. administration, be it Democrat or Republican. And so the the final report is a a document about uh, four or five inches thick that includes everything from the legal powers of the president uh, relative to the issue of climate change uh, without uh, climate legislation, uh, all the way down to personnel appointments and so forth. But it had 13 major chapters and looked at virtually everything that uh, would be on president, the next president's desk, which, of course, is uh, Barack Obama. At uh, ground level, uh, the project, and I'll conclude a few remarks uh, this morning about what we're doing in Oberlin to develop a climate-positive uh, city, a uh, town of about 12,000 people, uh, in Ohio, located uh, about 35 miles southwest of uh, Cleveland, 14 miles south of uh, Lake Erie. Uh, <clears throat> a couple of remarks on, on climate change and, and the, the nature of the book. Uh, opinions on climate, of course, vary widely. Uh, Jim Lovelock, who is arguably the best independent scientist in the world, at one end of the spectrum believes that uh, we basically bought the farm. And uh, Jim, in arguing uh, this case, believes that there may be uh, uh, no more than one or two billion people by the end of the century, that uh, 
uh, the best place to live is going to be Scotland because the warming and the uh, interruption of the uh, uh, North Atlantic conveyor will basically cancel themselves out. But how you get a couple of billion people into Scotland is, is an issue. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, the default setting, I think, in our culture, partly because we're Americans and we have a certain bias and worldview, is that climate is a solvable problem. And so between these two uh, bookends, since this is the rational uh, debate uh, about the issue, between those two bookends, we can uh, kind of pick and choose your own views. In trying to think about the issue, the first warning, when we did the, the work for uh, uh, President Obama, the first warning to a U.S. president was given 45 years ago. It was 1965. Uh, and then subsequent warnings to uh, the president about uh, climate change and what it might mean uh, were given at regular intervals. And, of course, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, now four reports. The fifth report is in, in the works. But uh, imagine if we had, in 1965, gotten a warning that the Soviet Union was going to make a doomsday device, and it would operate sometime in the 21st century. Imagine the different kind of reaction we would have had had it been a national, identified as a national security issue uh, committed by a dependably loathsome enemy. But we didn't act. And so we're now in uh, 2009 still at this point without a de jure climate policy. In lots of ways, th this issue has been characterized as uh, the perfect problem. And it has been. There are reasons why we have not been able to come to grips with it, and I think more so in the United States uh, than in most of the rest of the developing world. If you're old enough, you remember uh, Walt Kelly's uh, cartoon series Pogo, and uh, he has sometime in the late 1970s Pogo, who is a uh, muskrat or possum in the Okefenokee Swamp, uh, is cogitating about uh, uh, environmental issues, and he comes to the conclusion we met the enemy, and he's us. And, of course, carbon, uh, the heart of the, uh, the climate change issue, is uh, implicated in virtually everything that we do. You have a carbon footprint. I do. Uh, San Francisco does. Auburn, Ohio does. We, we all live by virtue of uh, cheap carbon uh, as an unpriced problem. So uh, it is a perfect problem. And for us, it hits us, uh, I think, culturally at a very difficult spot. Culturally, we are... Uh, Americans, we're optimistic, we love machinery, we're good at it. At our best, we are uh, technological virtuosos. And so by almost by definition, anything that comes along is fixable by some gadget or some better gadget. The, um, the nature of the issue, however, also hits us where we're weak. Uh, science education is not, uh, has not been one of our fortes. If you read uh, poll data and you discover that half of the American public or some such percentage believe in alien abduction and uh, don't believe in uh, uh, evolution and so forth, you can see we, we've got our work cut out for us in trying to educate the public about how the earth works as a physical system. And then there's a, another issue, and, and this, this is a particularly tough one for us. Uh, if you read the science it's evident that there's about a 30-year time lag between what comes out of our tailpipes and smokestacks and the weather, the climate change-driven weather effects that we see. So it's not like most issues where cause and effect are tightly coupled. These are tight or very uncoupled, and so there's this 30-year time lag. And in the fourth IPCC report, 
the science concludes that that time lag will drop to perhaps 20 years as oceans acidify and the uptake of carbon uh, by oceans uh, decreases. And so there is this, uh, on one side, lag between what we do and the effects that we see. And on the other side, there is a long lag. And I began down to the wire with a quote from David Archer, who is a geophysicist at the University of Chicago. And David Archer says words to the effect that uh, the effects of loading the atmosphere with carbon will last longer than uh, civilization, longer than Stonehenge, longer than time capsules, longer than nuclear waste. And so we're now dealing with an issue, the effects of which will last for not necessarily decades or hundreds of years even, but perhaps for thousands of years. Uh, Susan Solomon, in an article that appeared in the um, uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in January of this year, uh, indicates the same thing has been said before by, by others, that if we were by some miracle to stop emitting carbon immediately, uh, sea levels would continue to rise for a 1,000 years. So we've created a situation that the implications are now spilling well into the future. How do we think about this? Well, one way to think about this, if you happen to be biblical, uh, is that we're evicting ourselves effectively uh, from the only paradise we've ever known. And if you have a PowerPoint slide, it's easier to, to depict this. But imagine a band of uh, temperature ranges extending back uh, about 10,000 years. And that band had the climate and weather fluctuated clearly as it, it does uh, normally. But in that band, that's what the geologists call the Holocene. And that's the time at which we became what we are as humans, for better or for worse. That's our, our history, our poetry, our uh, triumphs, our failures. But that's the, that's the era in which we became uh, as we now are human. And so as we uh, load the atmosphere with carbon, we're creating conditions uh, the likes of which we have, we have no evolutionary experience. And so we're effectively, uh, in kind of a biblical way, evicting ourselves from this paradise called the Holocene by geologists. Uh, that's one way to think about it. You know, Wilson describes this as, uh, the coming decades, as a bottleneck. And uh, seven billion of us uh, are coming into this era and coming out the other side of this. We don't know how many people will be on the planet. Jim Lovelock, again, uh, predicts maybe uh, one or two billion, but uh, we don't know. Uh, James Howard Kunstler refers to this era as uh, one of what he calls the long emergency. But by whatever name, it is the most unusual period in human history. And it's a convergence, as John Platt, uh, the futurist, said many years ago, of a crisis of crises. So it's the end of the era of cheap, portable fossil fuels. It's a population uh, surge. Uh, we were one billion people on the planet. And uh, the year 1800, we are now 7 billion, more or less, and we will probably surge to 8 or 9 billion before population crests and begins a natural uh, decline. So how do we think about this? And in, in the book, I tried to address uh, this in a number of ways. The default setting for uh, Americans is to see this primarily as a technical issue, uh, solvable by better, by better gadgetry. And it certainly... Uh, has a technical side to it. Do we need better uh, ways to generate electricity and, and to uh, uh, sponsor our mobility? Absolutely. There's no question about that. But it is a bigger issue, and salvation by better gadgetry won't get us, uh, get us home free. There's a second way to think about this, and that is simply as an economic issue, that if we can just price carbon, then all else uh, will improve. 
And uh, it certainly is an economic issue. Uh, Nicholas Stern, the author of the, uh, the Stern Review, that came out in 2007, uh, commissioned by the uh, British Exchequer. Uh, Nicholas Stern argues that this is the largest market failure in history. And in a certain sense, it certainly is. But it was before that, it was, and a third way to see this is as a political issue. This was the largest political failure in history long before it was a market failure. We had warnings that date back to uh, 1965 at the White House, and we knew something about the effects of uh, carbon in the atmosphere all the way back to uh, Savanti Arrhenius' work in 1897, in which he took, uh, uh, he was in the midst of a, a very tough uh, uh, divorce, and he took his uh, marital anguish out on making some of the most incredibly tedious statistical calculations by hand. This is long before the era of computers, and he got it just about right. But we've known about the issue for a long, long time. So uh, this third way to think about it, beyond the technical aspects of it, and beyond the purely economic aspects of it are the issues of governance, which is to say how we conduct the public business. And <clears throat> not to preempt what I've said in the book, but as a political failure, it has several parts that are really obvious. Why didn't we respond to this sooner? And the fact that we didn't respond to it sooner means we've largely spent our margin of error. We didn't have room for a lot of error in this. That 30-year time lag between what comes out of our tailpipes and smokestacks and the climate change-driven weather effects, that's, that's the 30 years in which we should have been acting. So there's a capacity to respond to a variety of things. Uh, we know that climate change means a number of things. It will be headline events. Uh, if we have, let's say, two or three Katrina-scale events, we'll ask, we'll ask the federal government uh, to step in and relocate people and help people and communities recover to the extent that recovery would be possible. Uh, with rising sea levels, uh, in the fourth IPCC report, the, the number was still put at something like 40 centimeters sea level rise by the year 2100. Uh, as the report uh, went to press and when the members of the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change won the Nobel uh, Prize for their work, quite rightly so, uh, the, the, the group as a whole thought that the report was already outdated, that the evidence of sea level rise was such that it was more like a meter or two meters sea level rise by the year 2100, not just 40 centimeters. So <clears throat> how do we relocate people uh, in low-lying areas? The last time in the United States we tried to do anything on uh, land use uh, at the federal level was 1973. It was a bill that was uh, to provide money for um, uh, communities that wanted to plan, uh, develop uh, plans at the state level, uh, and that was defeated. And uh, that had no teeth in it anyway. Had it passed, it was, uh, it was just to provide planning money for states that wanted to do these things. So how would the federal government begin to uh, uh, take on this task of relocating people? And if some of the projections are correct, uh, much of the Midwest will be hotter and drier. Uh, agriculture will disappear. Uh, the Southwest and areas like Phoenix will become uh, simply uninhabitable. Uh, how do we re relocate people? Where do they go? This is clearly a matter of increased, enhanced, not just market capability, but governance uh, capacity. Uh, and then there are other issues. Toward the end of the book, I talked about uh, issues of rights. In the case where one generation can deprive subsequent generations of uh, the right to life, liberty, and property, and that's the wording of the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment, 
Uh, it is clear that climate change, uh, among other issues, but notably climate change, imperils the rights of future generations in ways that are fundamentally political. But in this case, they have no voice, unless it's your voice and mine, to say that they, we have to constrain our behavior to accord with their fundamental rights. So this takes uh, issues that we, we thought we had debated in the Federalist Papers and uh, in the U.S. Constitution and uh, puts them back on the agenda as interge intergenerational uh, problems. And then there's, there's a fourth way to think about this. And in the, um, in the documents that we put before the, the president, uh, Teddy Roosevelt coined the phrase, uh, the bully pulpit. And the use of the White House uh, capacity as an educational uh, vehicle, as a place where you could raise the uh, IQ of the public uh, on all kinds of issues. So we recommended that the president give uh, a great deal of attention and personal leadership to this issue uh, and even go so far as to give, uh, let's say, the climate equivalent of Franklin Roosevelt's Day of Infamy speech uh, given in the wake of the attack on Pearl Harbor. But... Beyond that, uh, James McGregor Burns, the, the great uh, historian in a, in a wonderful book called Leadership, which was written some years ago, talks about the difference between transactional leadership on one side and transformative leadership on the other. And we try to argue in this, uh, this document, and I try in, in Down to the Wire to say that this is a time quite clearly for something beyond simply transactional leadership, which is kind of more the same. It's tinkering with the, the coefficients of the problem, not the structure of the problem. And transformative leadership uh, goes at the structure of the issue. So we, we made a, a plea for that. A couple of comments uh, at the end of the book. There is the issue of uh, the word hope. Um, and somewhere between, if you're optimistic on this issue, uh, you just don't know enough. If you're in despair... Uh, that's a sin. You can't go there. So somewhere between despair on one side and uh, optimism on the other, there is this condition of hope. And I defined uh, hope as a verb with its sleeves rolled up. Hope means to be active and to be engaged and to be working not in the assurance that you're going to win uh, the game, but in the assurance that you're doing the right thing. Uh, and none of us know, given the severity of what uh, lies ahead or what simply is in the, described in the science, that we will, in fact, uh, come through this. But um, we, we typically like optimistic people. Uh, we like optimism. It is reassuring. I think in this case it is not an entirely appropriate response to the magnitude of this issue. And yet we can't go the other direction and go into despair. Uh, I said in the book that um, uh, hope is rather like being a uh, uh, Boston Red Sox or a Cleveland Indians fan uh, and you've got uh, two outs in the ninth inning, a runner at second, a 200-hitter at uh, home plate, and Mariano Rivera uh, in his prime throwing smoke from the mound. And uh, you can't be optimistic you're going to get the hit that gets that runner in from second base, but you can, uh, and you should be hopeful. And so as a Cleveland Indians fan, that's a whole other topic, and I'll not get into it. That's about original sin and all kind of other things. Um, <clears throat> but how do we envision the future? And uh, let me close the discussion of the book with uh, simply a comment that uh, looking at this issue and the inadequate human response uh, to climatic change and this convergence of this crisis of crises, how do we begin to uh, reformulate things? Uh, uh, Mahatma Gandhi 
uh, in his work on nonviolence, appears much in our culture as kind of an Eastern oddity and a thing that, uh, a kind of response that maybe it was a nice thing, but it's certainly totally impractical. And I made the argument that, in fact, nonviolence toward humans and toward the natural world is now our only realistic option. Uh, we've tried all the others, and this is the time to think of a higher level of realism instead of the, the kind of realism we've had in the past. Um, the, um, the conclusion of this, getting back down to ground level, and in some of the advertisement for this, uh, for this talk, my day job is back down at ground level in Oberlin, Ohio, a city of about uh, 10 or 12,000 people with a great college, uh, Oberlin College, the first college to accept African Americans in the United States and the first college to admit uh, women. Uh, back in 1833. And it has a uh, great conservatory of music. It, it, it turns out more uh, young people who go on for careers in the sciences than any other comparable liberal arts college in the country. So that's my advertising plug for Oberlin College. Great school. Um, we're the college and the city are engaged now in an effort to do several major things. One is to redevelop the downtown as a green district. And so everything we've heard about the green economic uh, downtown development is part of the plan. Uh, secondly, take the town not just to carbon neutrality but to carbon uh, positive state, generating more power from uh, the combination of efficiency, sunlight, renewables, and, and so forth than uh, we actually use. And then thirdly, to develop a 20,000-acre um, uh, green belt around the city as a place to restore agric local agriculture, uh, forestry, and a variety of other, of other industries. And then do this as a, uh, an educational venture, but uh, also as a, an economic venture to create working models uh, of what uh, post-cheap fossil fuel prosperity really would mean. Uh, so with that, let me, uh, let me turn it back over to Greg. Our thanks to Professor David Orr for his comments here today at the Commonwealth Office. We have a number of questions, uh, but first I have to ask, uh, what happened in 1965 when someone went in to uh, present Lyndon Johnson? Did he have some salty reply about uh, climate change? You know, I don't know, but knowing what I, the little I do about uh, Lyndon Johnson, I expect he did, and it was probably uh, deleted with lots of expletives. And then how about the Presidential Climate Action Project? Let's talk a little bit about that. What were the specific recommendations, and um, how were they presented to the Obama administration, and how were they doing on, on the, so far? Well, on the first part, we, um, we met with uh, the president uh, in November of uh, 2007, the president or the candidate Obama in 2007. We met uh, subsequently with uh, John Podesta, who headed his transition team. We met with actually both transition teams. And we brought in a number of people, uh, uh, national security experts, and at one very poignant uh, point in the conversation, a uh, flag admiral turned to both transition teams in a room about this size and said, if, uh, if we thought the Cold War was a security issue, we've seen nothing yet. He said, beyond some point, we can't defend the United States. Uh, very, very poignant. So the education started with dialogue with the transition teams and then uh, with the uh, – That's with both transition teams in the same room. With both transition teams in the same room. And, and I'll tell you, Greg, you, you could see 
uh, I looked over at the faces of, of both teams, and they really didn't know how to process this. How do you message that to the public? And uh, they obviously didn't try. The campaign, uh, neither campaign really dealt with climate change uh, as a serious issue, I think. On, uh, on President Obama now, I, personally, I would have preferred that he would have taken on climate first, health care second. But that's, uh, for whatever reasons, that, that was not the decision. Uh, he's now got his work cut out from Copenhagen. It's coming up in December very quickly. The United States uh, does not have a uh, uh, legislation. We have some bills. Uh, the Kerry uh, Boxer bill in the Senate, uh, Waxman Markey in the House, and we, we, but we don't have a policy yet. So th this is a uh, United States still does not have a, a position. So I give President Obama on this yet. Well, I, I'd give him no grade at this point. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's too early to tell exactly what he will do. I would hope, though, that he weighs in on this issue with uh, something, again, like uh, the climate version of the Day of Infamy speech. The public needs to be told what lies ahead. And it's the reason American politics, as all of us know, is to defer something, the consequences of which are 5 or 10 or 20 years uh, into the future or farther. Uh, so this is not a time for politics as usual. But I don't, I don't think we know yet what uh, the president is going to do. As long as we're grading uh, politicians, let's talk about Al Gore. He has a book out recently that talks a lot about the gadgetry that you mentioned. Right. Um, right. What do you think of his, his approach right now? Well, <clears throat> you know, Al Gore, for me, is a heroic person. I mean, he stood up on this issue. Uh, Inconvenient Truth is a great piece of work. He mastered the science and then mastered how to actually get this out to the public. So... Uh, for me, Al Gore is a heroic person. I hope that he writes one more book, uh, at least on this subject, about governance, because I think this is a, a, an issue of governance first and foremost. It wasn't a market failure first. This was a failure of uh, in the way we conduct the public business uh, to set the rules around markets to begin to price carbon and do the things that we knew how to do. Back in 1951, the, uh, the Paley Commission report, projected a U.S. future which by, say, 1990, I believe it was in a report, uh, something like 20 or 25 percent of American power would be generated from renewable sources. And we didn't do that. But we had the possibility. And it wasn't because it was out, uh, it didn't, didn't work technologically. It would have worked technologically. It was, it was uh, politicized out. Cheap energy and, and the power of oil and, and coal companies, which, of course, still exists. Uh, deferred that American future. That was our margin of error to avoid the worst of what could lie ahead, and we simply didn't act on it. So I hope Al Gore, who is a, clearly, to me, a heroic figure, but I hope he writes one more book on governance, uh, because we have to now do in governance what we uh, will find very difficult to do, and that is to create systems of governance that are calibrated to the long term and also figure out how we conduct a public business in a way that calibrates with or uh, works with the way the world works as a physical system. And those are not first and foremost market issues. Those are governance issues. So uh, specifically, what kind of governance reforms would you suggest be in that book? Or what do we need to do to, be, to, uh, to have more, more long-term uh, thinking? We have two-year election cycles in Congress. We have a very short mm -hmm. news cycle. We have short memories. Uh, how would you suggest changing? What specifically would you suggest changing to get more towards a long-term view in governance? Let's go to your next question. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, uh, very quickly, I think there, and Al Gore did uh, address some of these things in his book, Assault on Reason. Um, we've got to get money out of politics. 
and by, by whatever name, campaign finance reform, we've basically tinkered with that issue. And I think we need the same separation of uh, we have between church and state between money and, and, and politics. Uh, there, there's a second thing that I think we've lost control of the airwaves. And in the uh, FCC uh, Act of 1947, uh, the, the fair and balanced phrase that Fox News, of course, is co-opted, uh, people who have access to the public airwaves, which are your airwaves and mine, are uh, required to present all sides of an issue. And if they didn't, they could lose their license. And that has been, uh, that, that's been lost. Uh, in the rights of future generations, uh, politically, we need some way to think about how to extend uh, protection to the unborn. And there's an interesting convergence between the debate that we've had over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, well, since uh, Roe v. Wade, uh, the rights of, of uh, the fetus and the rights of unborn. But in this case, the issue is about aborting whole generations of people, of destroying uh, the capacity for life itself on the planet. But the arguments are not so dissimilar. So there, there's a room for, I think, a much larger debate about life and how we protect it and what that means for uh, laws and governance. You also uh, talk a little bit about um, natural capitalism and, and the idea that, that aligning the, the market can be, can be marshaled in more constructive ways. So let's talk mm -hmm. about your view of, of what, first of all, I want to say what natural capitalism is. Well, natural capitalism is a theory. It's a wonderful book put out by uh, Amory uh, and Hunter Lovins and Paul Hawken. And it came out first about 10 years ago. It's a, a new edition that is coming up on, on, uh, on the web now. Um, it, it's the theory that if we extend the uh, thinking of capitalism to include what is called natural capital, soils, forests, wildlife, and so forth, and we see that as capital to be protected, and simply extend the logic of capitalism over to uh, the natural domain that things will, will work out. Um, it, uh, on, on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, uh, I'm all for it. On Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, I just don't think it's going to work. On Sunday, I rest. Uh, and, and the problem is, is this, that capital, as it is typically regarded in business, is factories and money. And those operate by the laws of greed and smartness. On the other side, there are two other kinds of capital that they deal with in the book. Human capital, you and me, people, and natural capital, which is soils and forests and so forth. But those operate by laws of affection and foresight. And the theory is you can, you can pull these together and it all works. If you, if you just price soils and so forth, it, it'll, it'll all come together. Um, the, the book is, their, their book, Natural Capitalism, is a brilliant book. If you haven't read it, I, I strongly recommend it. It's the best thing I, I've seen. And is there need for a new economy? Absolutely. New economic thinking? Absolutely. Uh, how do we get the prices of things right uh, is certainly an issue. But the prior issue for me is how do we want to get the prices right in the first place? And that, that's a change in how we think. That's a change in paradigms and mindset and, and the categories of thought. So um, when I teach uh, that part of a policy class, uh, I include natural capitalism, and I also include other readings, include, including people like Joel Cavell, a Marxist theorist that is very opposed to it. I don't think we know yet 
with the economic challenges, uh, how we're going to meet those kind of economic challenges. But uh, quite clearly, we've got to get the price of energy right. Uh, that is a big step to get a price on carbon. But as far as a roadmap into the future and see what the economy uh, of, let's say, a sustainable and sustaining economy of the year 2100 would look like, I don't know. Um, but it, it certainly would, uh, would start with getting the prices right. But do you do think that markets have a role? I mean, are you talking about something, a new system other than capitalism, or just changing the way that, that the, the market forces are played out? Not clear how far you want to go with it. Well, uh, you know, we, we live in, a, in an era of failed isms. Communism failed. Uh, socialism is thought to be a failure. Capitalism, as Vaslav Havel said, will fail, just give it enough time, unless we, we change things dramatically. Uh, Greg, I think the only thing that I, I could say is this, that that in, in thinking about the whole society, uh, say the, the proverbial three-legged stool, one side of that is going to be commerce and markets. And clearly we need markets that work. And we've been through a pretty rough uh, year and a half uh, since it collapsed last year. We found that even Alan Greenspan admitted that uh, he found flaws in his thinking that, uh, you know, foxes shouldn't be allowed to guard chicken coops and so forth. But uh, that, that's another issue. But we now know that the economy... Uh, didn't work right, that we were not nearly as rich as we thought we were. But in a weird kind of way, if I can divert here just a little bit, we were perhaps richer than we thought or knew we were when we thought ourselves to be merely wealthy and referring to uh, neighborhood connections and, and creativity that exists within organizations. So it gets me real quickly to the other leg of that stool, which is uh, civil society. It's organizations and NGOs, and it, it's the Rotary Club, and it's uh, churches and civic organizations. And then the third leg, which uh, is often dismissed, I think, by, by uh, proponents of natural capitalism, uh, is governance. It's getting the politics of things right. And it's, it's only governments that can tax and wage wars and uh, get you into the kind of mess in which we now find ourselves. That, that is a whole series of governing failures. So I think this has to be regarded as a three-legged stool. Capitalism, I think, can be uh, reformed. But to do that, we'll take uh, a strong, engaged government doing what governments do best, and then it's also going to take a citizenry, that civil society, that third leg, uh, and an engaged and, and sometimes enraged citizenry to force the changes that we, we need. Our guest at Climate One today is David Orr, professor of environmental studies and politics at Oberlin College. Uh, question from the audience. Is the planet on a warming trend perhaps regardless of collective human activity, and can we really stop it? So it's the anthropogenic <laughs> question. Partly. If the answer is no, we can, we can quit. Uh, the planet is, um, uh, should be actually in a, in a cooling phase. But the, the problem with, with uh, heat-trapping gases uh, no matter what phase the, the Earth is in, if we're in a cooling phase, heat-trapping gases primarily, uh, there are roughly six uh, very potent ones, carbon dioxide being the most important. But it would be retarding the cooling. If we're in a warming phase, it's amplifying the cooling. And so the, the record of uh, CO2 in the atmosphere and other heat-trapping gases is, and we now have a very good record, the science is very clear on this, it goes back about 600 and some thousand years in terms of the ice core record, air bubbles trapped in, in ice. And that record is very clear, very definitive. There's not going to be much debate about it. Weaken the rules of evidence a little bit, and you can extend the record back another roughly 600,000 years. Weaken a little bit further, and you can take it back maybe, uh, I don't know, five or ten million years. 
But what we now know is that since we've been on the Earth, the level of carbon dioxide has never been higher. The background level was around 280 to 290 parts per million. And we were roughly at that level in, say, the year 1890 when Savanti Arrhenius began to do his calculations. We're now at about 390 parts per million. And so we're loading the atmosphere, and we're running this, what uh, somebody described as a uh, one-time experiment with the planet. Jim Hansen, who is arguably the most uh, prominent climate scientist in the world, Jim Hansen last year published a paper in which he said that 350 parts per million was the safe level. And the reason is, is fairly uh, obvious, that, that the longer we linger above 350, uh, the greater the likelihood is that we will trigger uh, these long-term, remorseless, and irrevocable, for our purposes and our sense of time, uh, climate effects, most of which have to do with methane. So warm the oceans a bit, and we uh, release methane, which is locked up in, in seabed, seabeds and as methane clathrates. Uh, warm the uh, land uh, a bit, and you release methane that's locked up in boreal forest and tundra soils. And we know that both of those are, in fact, happening. And methane as a uh, uh, heat-trapping gas is much more potent than uh, carbon dioxide is molecule for molecule, although it doesn't last as long in the atmosphere. Now, some of the climate science here, you can see people when you talk about things like this, people's eyes glaze over. And one of the issues here is we have to think our way through this issue. These are complicated things, and we have got to create the, the public capacity to understand the science. I mean, I'd, I'd love to see President Obama go to the public and kind of the way Ross Perot did once, you know, my fellow Americans and have a flip chart or PowerPoint presentation, but walk us through the science, much as Al Gore did, uh, not in as much detail, but give this the importance it's due. And uh, we will have to think our way through this. And the other part of the question is, is it uh, resolvable? Well, frankly, I don't think we know that. I, I think we've run uh, quite inadvertently a major gamble with the way the Earth works. And so this, this gives uh, not reason for despair, but re every reason for as rapid a uh, change as we can possibly make. Uh, if this was a war, I think that we need to deal with this with a sense of wartime emergency. We need to deploy uh, much better technology much faster. We need to make market changes and so forth. But uh, instead of at the pace we're doing, which is actually for us pretty rapid, I think it needs to be still uh, much more rapid. You mentioned that Richard Branson, the British uh, entrepreneur and industrialist, mm -hmm. actually is backing something called the Carbon War Room. So yeah. people are starting to, to use that that term and, and use that language, the sort of a war on, on carbon. Another question from the audience, uh, sticking with science, is the American population's inability to grasp the climate problem cause and effect of our ignorance? Or do many Americans just lack the ability to understand science? Or perhaps the scientists maybe aren't doing a good job of communicating it. Uh, you know, there, there are two. Uh, again, Al Gore's book, Assault on Reason, I think is, is a, uh, a good place to start to answer that question. And a recent book by Susan Jacoby uh, called simply The Age of Unreason is, is a, a great book. And... I think we have to reckon with something about American society. We've been highly distracted. The average American watches television on average, we're told, something like four hours and some minutes a day, and, and reality TV shows and so forth. And we, we've clearly been distracted by lots of things that are not very important. And I think the uh, how do we get out of this, I don't know. Uh, I think that we, 
in many ways, the younger generation of students I see at the college level uh, are transcending this. They're, they're engaged in some surprisingly effective ways. There's a very uh, robust uh, greening of the campus movement and uh, carbon neutrality uh, movement on college campuses. And I think even in high schools, I think they're, they're young people are beginning to weigh in on this in, in major ways. But uh, I, I think this is an issue of science education. And everything that we can do to improve science education, K through 12, would be to good effect. So the people, nobody comes out of school uh, at 12th grade or uh, four years of college without knowing how the earth works as a physical system and why that's important to them. We think it's important to teach uh, the basics of economics, and I think it is. But in this case, we don't, we don't do a very good job teaching, essentially, uh, the basics of how the earth works as a physical system. And that is, I think, bedrock uh, reason why we don't, we haven't responded. California is uh, about to come out with a revised mm -hmm. curriculum, K through 12 uh, curriculum that actually incorporates some, and climate change and some environmental issues, which I believe is the first time mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's done, done that. An integrated curriculum for all grades, including climate and other scientific uh, issues. That's a great change. Uh, Fewer and fewer people believe that climate change is a problem despite the climate and the reports. Can this be changed, and why is that happening? Boy, good, great question. Uh, unfortunately, the, the poll data from the, the Pew uh, poll and Gallup polls recently, I believe, have both shown that the percentage of Americans that believe that climate change is a real issue has dropped from uh, back down to 55 percent from what it was, maybe 71 percent or whatever the number might have been, but it's dropped significantly. And we know that as uh, temperature, uh, is, it's been a fairly cool uh, last uh, several years. And so people's concern about climate uh, drops pretty dramatically. It rises when heat goes up and, and storms increase, but it drops when uh, we're in one of these little uh, dips in that, that upward trend line. So, uh, again, I think that this is an issue of education, to, to equip people to understand uh, how the Earth works as a physical system. We're continuing to load the atmosphere with carbon. And so the trend line jiggles like a lot of things statistically. So there, as the line goes up generally, there are going to be some drops in it for reasons that have to do with uh, complicated physical uh, phenomena like uh, El Nino and La Nina years and so forth. But... This is an issue, again, of uh, basic education. We have to do a much better job equipping people to understand the, the way the earth works as a physical system and why this is important for California and Ohio and in all of our lives and our, our children. But th this goes back uh, to education and some major reforms. It's great to hear that you're responding to this here in California. Maybe we will in Ohio someday. Another question from the audience. Uh, Jim Hansen rejects Captain Trade, and the, the uh, mm -hmm. writer of this question uses the spelling used on uh, John Stewart's Daily Show, where Captain Trade actually was a person like Captain Crunch, um, mm -hmm. and says uh, he favors car Jim Hansen favors carbon fees and rebates instead. Do you agree? Please explain why. So it's the Captain Trade versus. You know, tax. when we went through this on the the uh, climate action plan. Um, we, we had both sides. John Holdren, who's the president's science advisor, came out very strongly for attacks on carbon. Uh, most of the people that were part of uh, our effort, there were about 250 of us, uh, were for cap and trade, largely because in the political discourse it was more acceptable than a tax. Tax has kind of become a four-letter word. So um, we split on it. My personal opinion is this, that either one would work 
The virtue of a cap is you get a fairly, if it's, if it's properly administered and enforced, you get a, you get a certainty of result. If you cap emissions at, uh, you know, 400 parts per million or whatever the level is, uh, and you issue only permits to uh, the large polluters to emit that much, then that, that's what you get. Uh, taxes are a little less certain. So given what's called the elasticity of demand, it's not clear what level of tax gets what level of response. But having said that, I think it is possible that uh, either one would work if we wanted them to work. And so the issue is uh, the, the seriousness of commitment, uh, the capability of administration in trying to enforce uh, these things. But uh, years ago, in 1976, in the transition to the, uh, the Carter era, a group of us got together, Amory Lovins and Dennis Hayes and, and uh, a number of people got together and drafted for Jimmy Carter what was called the Wolf Creek Statement. And in that document, we recommended uh, a tax on energy to be administered at the mine mouth, the wellhead, the port of entry, and then let the effects of that ripple through, but basically a severance tax on, on energy. Uh, that clearly didn't happen, but I think you could make either one work. And it, to me, in an ideal world, what would happen would be something – uh, of both. You set a cap for the big macro uh, sorts of things, but you use uh, taxation to fine-tune the, uh, the response uh, together. But uh, I, I think either alone could work. The question is the willpower and the, the determination as we administer either of those systems. One of the premises of cap-and-trade is, is the use of offsets, and that's where I think a lot of critique comes at, at cap-and-trade is the offsets. Are they really real? Are they accomplishing anything? Or are they just kind of a, a scam, really? So um, did you debate that in, in your group about offsets, and do you have any confidence in off offsets? Well, we, we, we did debate it. And for me personally, when, we, when I get down to ground level with offsets, uh, the Oberlin City Project, I want the offsets to be visible and verifiable and a place where I can go see the effects. And the problem with offsets... Uh, so that means not in Brazil somewhere. Means Well, you, you know, Greg, what goes on in Brazil, how do you know? So if you buy uh, X tons of offsets by something happening in Brazil or in Africa or whatever, how do you know that it actually occurred? So if it's tree planting, uh, how many trees got planted, how many survived, and uh, did they in fact get planted? And so offsets are, uh, I think, a useful device, hopefully fairly temporary, but what we're trying to do in our project I described is to develop offsets locally, ways to invest into the economy locally so that you can, you can see what you get. And th this is a case where local climate policies, I think, are particularly uh, useful, where you, you, you can actually uh, take money and invest it locally, get offsets, and in fact, uh, but you can see the results. Another question from the audience is, energy efficiency has been described as the low-hanging fruit of our mm -hmm. dual energy and environmental challenges. However, most energy use is not efficient, uh, and how can uh, what are the barriers to energy efficiency and what can be done to surmount them? Well, great question. Um, we, we know that efficiency is the fastest, cheapest, best thing to do. Uh, in the election campaign in 2008, however, it didn't really factor. And I think there's something very American about that. The cheapest, best thing we can do is to conserve, but there's something about us that's always been about increasing supply. And so the dialogue is on, well, it's on clean coal. And if you believe that, uh, well, we'll talk later. Uh, and then nuclear power and increasing uh, supply, and nuclear has always been a very expensive way to boil water. 
but to say that we have to go toward efficiency. And the, the studies show uh, the McKinsey reports that have come out of McKinsey, a business consulting uh, company. Uh, the last report that came out several months ago showed that we could save, I think the numbers were, 23% of our uh, energy use by the year 2020 at no net cost. And you've seen the McKinsey diagrams. It has a flat line here and a, uh, lots of things down here that represent different technologies and design techniques. Below that line is that they're free. And then above the lines, you get up to maybe four or five cents a kilowatt hour equivalent. Uh, this side equals that side. And the point of all that kind of complicated diagram is to say that uh, there is a lot of low-hanging fruit. What we've lacked so far is a way to deliver efficiency uh, to businesses and uh, residences and organizations. Uh, so one of the things we're trying to do in the Oberlin Project is to figure out a way to deliver demand-side management. And you in California, uh, Art Rosenfeld and other people here in California, pioneered demand-side management a long, long time ago. And so I, I always, when I do talks on this, will show the graph from California showing your energy use basically um, on a residential basis, basically flat, that in the United States uh, at large rising. Your economic growth until recently a little faster than that nationally. So you have to explain those two gaps. Uh, and it's an interesting story. But uh, th this means policy changes that uh, give priority first and foremost to efficient use of energy and then figure out how we deploy that. And you've done uh, more here in California on that than certainly the, the rest of the country and certainly uh, uh, my state of Ohio. And I think the, the recent federal stimulus bill also had some things on, on efficiency. That is, to, every year we, the United States subsidizes mm -hmm. heating oil for people living in houses with lots of cracks and inefficient uh, insulation. And this time around, I think they, they funded some insulation, uh, thinking that, well, it's better to insulate, pay to insulate the house because we're going to have to subsidize less fuel in, in future years. So hopefully we're getting some things on the federal level as well. Um, our guest at Climate One today is David Orr, Professor of Environmental Studies and Politics at Oberlin College. Uh, question about de developing countries and how they, they fit into this and whether they ought to make uh, deeper cuts or they ought to be given something of a, of a uh, given a break in terms of the, the path to a low-carbon society. Well, boy, that's, that's a hot issue politically uh, going to Copenhagen. And it, it's hard for me to... Um, Imagine being a member of a third world country and needing to develop and uh, looking at the United States where our carbon emissions are around 22 tons per person per year and their emissions are down under three or four. Uh, in the case of Bangladesh, uh, probably around one. So th this is a major issue. And it, it's for us, it's a wrenching decision because it means, uh, again, that climate change is the, uh, in the words of a number of reports from CNA and the CIA and other uh, security so organizations. The Center for Na Naval for Analysis. Naval Analysis, yeah. The, the, um, uh, it, it's the largest security challenge uh, that we'll face. And yet it is not one that is solvable by tanks and bombs and airplanes and so forth. And so the roughly $1 trillion that we spend on war fighting and on military expenditures is virtually useless in this sense of uh, uh, security. So uh, we're over a barrel, uh, pardon the pun on that, we're, but we, we are in, in, a, in a rough spot because they can, the third world, can sink the boat. If China and India and any combination of countries uh, decide not to play ball, their emissions could eventually uh, destroy us. So th this is a classic case of the tragedy of the commons, as Garrett Hardin once described. 
And it means that we will have to accommodate uh, demands in the third world for sharper reductions than we have yet considered. When George Bush, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush said the American way of life was not negotiable, I mean, it, that, that will go down as uh, one of the more remarkable uh, statements made by an American, uh, right up there with uh, Custer's last recorded words at the Battle of Little Bighorn, which were, hurrah, boys, now we have them. Uh, Osama bin Laden alone on one day uh, in a matter of minutes negotiated the American way of life downward dramatically to the tune of trillions of dollars. So I think we have to learn that we're part of one world. One other comment on this is, is to say that the, uh, it would be a mistake for the third world to try to replicate our manner of development. Uh, the technology is much, much better now. And instead of going to centralized power plants and nuclear power plants and so forth, distributed energy in the same fashion we have distributed computing. Uh, and the, the technology permits them to go there. So the, the one thing I think that we can do that would make a dramatic change is to help deploy advanced technology globally, uh, starting with places that need it most. And, uh, uh, and that, that's money that I think is as a much wiser investment for security than money spent to buy military hardware in this country. One technology that some people think should be deployed globally is this idea of uh, geoengineering, whether it's uh, mm -hmm. sulfur in, in the atmosphere or pods uh, on the ocean that reflect light. Uh, and that's become quite a, a hot issue these days is geoengineering, whether that's folly or whether it's, it's going to be necessary because the political process is not achieving the cuts that the scientists say we need. So what's your take on geoengineering? Well, um, we don't know much about it, do we? Uh, the uh, people who propose it uh, can't tell you exactly what it does. Uh, it's tinkering with a large system. It may be that we will come to the point and be desperate enough that we'll have to take desperate measures. But that means that we will not have done all the obvious things beforehand, like improve efficiency, like deploy solar and wind, and like being able to redesign communities where we build access in and mobility out. Uh, we, we have lots and lots of options. We, we, by and large, know these things pretty well. I think the last four or five decades, we have built the intellectual capital on which to make a different society, and one that isn't doom and gloom and sackcloth and ashes. But we, we know these things. The question now is rapid deployment with kind of a sense of wartime urgency. But geoengineering raises lots of issues, tampering with the planet. And then there are questions of uh, what happens if you decrease uh, sunlight. Well, you change rainfall patterns. And you begin to incur lots of other things that ripple through the – and what's needed here, and this goes back to education, is an understanding that we're dealing with complex systems. And so we, we need to understand the complexity of this thing and lots of unintended consequences and their step-level changes. But if we don't do the things that we know we must do that are easy and cheap and quick, uh, like efficiency and like renewables, then we may come to the point where we have to do geoengineering. And that will be a very unhappy day. And there will be lots of – it may work for part of the world some of the time. It may work for none of the world any of the time. We, we just don't know. And the basic research on geoengineering has not uh, not been done, so it is it is a uh, it's a shot in the dark. It's simply an unknown unknown thing. Do you think we should continue that research as a hedge into geoengineering, just in case? Well, uh, the longer we wait on everything else, the more we the, the greater the risk. We'll have to do desperate things. Uh, should we research it? Absolutely.
I think we should know what to do. But if, if, if you have a choice of spending dollars on geoengineering or dollars on efficiency, uh, mitigation or dollars on efficiency and renewables, in my mind, uh, will always be the best thing to do. One thing that the sulfur in the atmosphere won't address is the acidification of the oceans. And we have a question here. Is there any hope for avoiding the death of the oceans? So let's talk about oceans, which we haven't quite touched on yet. Well, uh, oceans are acidifying. And if you had, had tuned into the scientific debate uh, 12 or 15 years ago, it was described as a problem that was maybe 200 years into the future. And now we know it's, uh, it's here now. And uh, the pH of oceans is now uh, trending to the high sevens. That's a logarithmic scale. So every drop uh, is a uh, order of magnitude. So you, we're moving in a direction where the death of the oceans is a plausible event. Uh, we know that, for example, 90% of the big fish have been uh, taken out of the oceans. And the ocean ecology is dramatically different now uh, than what it was uh, 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Uh, and ocean acidification, of course, affects uh, everything else, the uptake of carbon, uh, uh, ocean life, reefs, and so forth. So ocean ecology is changing dramatically. The problem for the oceans uh, is that there is no ombudsman or advocate, by and large, for uh, healthy oceans, uh, except a few scientists. And uh, international organizations that deal with it have yet been unfunded or underfunded and it's one of those things that's out of sight uh, and out of mind for us. But oceans are a, uh, uh, they are in jeopardy. And, and serious people who uh, know the science and study these things uh, for a living uh, do talk about uh, the death of the oceans. We're getting towards the end. Uh, a couple last questions here. Um, you've talked a little bit about both, but I'd like to draw you a little bit in terms of order of preference. Are you more focused on national, international politics or individual decision-making? So is this going to happen for, from the top down, bottom up? A lot of people say both. Uh, but, yeah. but where do you think the real change is going to come from? Well, it has to come from all of the above, doesn't it? I mean, the, the way I see, the, the way I read the science, there is on one side of this chasm, there is a scientific dialogue. On the other, there is the public discourse. And they don't match up. And so you start with the fact that we, we've got to raise the level of public discourse. Uh, and Al Gore did address this in Inconvenient Truth. The, the minimum that is politically possible doesn't even begin to approach the, the what we have to do that's scientifically necessary. Uh, so this is a time for, I mean, in, in, in California, a young uh, man by the name of Eric Lors, L-O-O-R-Z, uh, a few months ago, I met Eric, and he's all of 15, but at age 12, he began a, a climate blog and began to organize his peers to do climate action things. Uh, and he will make a lot of, uh, a lot of waves before he's finished, uh, all the way out to uh, people in the AARP organizing uh, retirement homes to, to move toward energy efficiency. But the people in the Senate, uh, international agencies and organizations, this, frankly, it's all hands-on-deck time. We need everybody. We need pressure from the bottom up. We need we need genuine leadership at an historic level. A good bit of down to the wire. I try to uh, define the kind of leadership that we need, but it's moral leadership, and it's clearly, I think, in my judgment, transformative leadership, not just transactional leadership. This is time to go after the system uh, changes that are necessary, not just the coefficients at which things get worse. Are there any transformative leaders out there today? 
I think there are many of them uh, at all levels. And, and there are certainly in my domain in education, there are lots of people working in colleges and universities that I would call transformative. In business, uh, Ray Anderson, uh, uh, the CEO and founder of Interface uh, Carpet Corporation, uh, Ray is clearly transformative. Uh, in his book, uh, Confessions of a Radical Industrialist, is a, a record of a person who is a transformative leader in, in industry. Uh, I think Al Gore is a transformative leader. But they're all over now. And I think if, if I had said, if you'd asked that question maybe uh, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, the answer would have been probably not at this point. But uh, there is now a genuinely global movement that's gathering steam and gathering momentum. Uh, several weeks ago here in San Francisco, the Rocky Mountain Institute held one of its solutions uh, gatherings. And it was a huge gathering. And it, it's uh, e extremely bright uh, people, very dedicated, working on all kinds of issues. But I can't imagine that gathering being held here or anywhere uh, 20 years ago. So there is a, uh, there, there is a movement, a transformative movement uh, around the planet now, literally millions of people acting uh, in all kinds of areas. And at the international scale, one of the things that Richard Branson, since you mentioned uh, Richard, the formation of this group called the Elders, uh, which includes people like Vaslav Havel and Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela and B. Robinson and so forth, uh, we need those voices as well. But th this is a time, I think, of uh, real transformation. But it's a race now. H.G. Uh, Wells once said that uh, we're in a race between what he called education and catastrophe. And I think that's a pretty good way to, to put this. We are in a race, but I think that we are now moving. We're now, I think, coming into the game. But it, it's going to be a close call. That's why I call the book Down to the Wire. I think it will go down to the wire. None of the transformative leaders you mentioned are elect, currently elected officials. Is that a coincidence? They're, they all well, seem to tra be tra no. transformative once they're out of office. <laughs> well, uh, anyone in, this, this, anyone this in is why now? I think that this issue is first and foremost an issue of governance, not, not economics, uh, although it's certainly an economic issue. It has economic aspects. It's certainly a technical issue and, and so forth. But I think it's an issue of governance, and I think it's the way we select leaders and the way we've conducted the public business to allow money to corrupt the conduct of the public business. So if, if we had to make uh, two changes, we could do them uh, today. One would be to federally fund all elections. You cannot private, take private contributions to a public office. And number two, uh, open up the public airwaves so that, in fact, what appears on the airwaves is indeed fair and balanced. And there is a misinformation industry that's alive and robust. And I think we can do that and keep the, uh, the First Amendment and the, the Bill of Rights intact. But I think we have to reclaim the public commons, part of which is the public airwaves. But uh, that would make it a lot easier for people who are of transformative stature uh, to be elected. I mean, imagine somebody uh, like Abraham Lincoln being elected now. It, means it would be very difficult. And I don't mean to demean people who hold public office because there are many, many uh, dedicated public servants. But I think it's harder for them because if they speak out on these issues, they, of course, offend the people that, that can uh, provide the money to get them elected the next time around. So I think there are reasons for, for that. We're at the point where we just have one last question. And this one from the audience says, what role, if any, will passive and active civil disobedience need to play in the face of continuing governmental inaction on climate change? Oh, um, you know, James Hansen has gone out there and gotten arrested. He has. Um, um, do you think that we'll see more of that or should? I, I think we should see a lot more of it. Uh, and in the case Jim Hansen was arrested uh, as part of a 
protest against mountaintop removal in West Virginia. And if there was ever an outrage, uh, it is the, the, the practice of cutting the tops of mountains off and taking the debris and filling in val valleys, which uh, is uh, going gangbusters right now in places like West Virginia and, and southern Appalachia. And uh, uh, that, that's a case where civil disobedience uh, uh, is important. So the short answer to a really good question is yes, I think we need a lot more of it. But it needs to be civil, it needs to be organized, it needs to be disobedient. And uh, in full awareness, you can't cross the lines into uh, uh, violent protests without uh, uh, being uh, counterproductive. Our thanks to David Orr, Professor of Environmental Studies and Politics at Oberlin College, for his comments today here at Climate One. And now this program is adjourned. Thanks for coming. Thanks. Thank you.